0: Hello. In November 1666, Lady Margaret Denham, a prominent member of Charles II's court, and mistress to the future King James II, fell ill. She died two months later. Diarist Samuel Pepys records, I hear that my Lady Denham is exceeding sick, even to death, and that she says, and everybody else discourses, that she is poisoned. It could even, Pepys writes, have been a plot to kill the king. The poison was concealed in a cup of hot chocolate. Despite having captured the public imagination at the time, Margaret Denham's death has become an unimportant footnote in 17th century history. In this series, we explore her life and death in detail, investigating one of the most high-profile homicide cases of the Restoration. I'm Romy Nuttall, and I'm here with Sophie Shawland to finally find out who hath
1: done it. So we've already looked at Anne Hyde, Duchess of York, and her motive for murder, Margaret Denham's very public affair with her husband, James, Duke of York, and all the political power she was getting through that. But in this episode, we're going to be looking at Elizabeth Mallet, the heiress of the West, another elite courtier who became Lady Rochester in 1667. Elizabeth Mallett is a prime suspect in this investigation because, as we discussed at the end of the previous episode, she gets mentioned in the pre-war history book that started us off on this quest to find Margaret Denham's murderer. The book said, "'Whether it,' meaning the poison, "'was administered by her jealous husband or Lady Rochester, people were not decided, but that she was poisoned and that her troubled spirit found no rest was believed by most people.'" So at the time, people believed that Lady Rochester was one of two suspects. So she was very potentially implicated in this crime. And we know that Elizabeth Mallet
0: and Margaret Denham would have been moving in the same court circles, so they would have known each other. But where would Elizabeth Mallet's motive have come from? Why does she get this mention? Like all good historians, sometimes we have to speculate. (laughs) And we think, given what we know of Margaret Denham and what we know of the Earl of Rochester, Elizabeth Mallet's husband, that it is extremely likely that Margaret Denham was having an affair with Rochester in the months leading up to her death. So we know that the Duke of York's ex-mistress was Goditha Price... And that Margaret Denham publicly denigrated her. They did not get along. Around the same time, Rochester also falls out with
1: God's Price. So so are Rochester (laughs) and Margaret Denham acting together? Do we know why they fell out? Well, it could have been to do with
0: Margaret Denham. the plot thickens. Yeah. We hear from... Hamilton, our favorite Restoration gossip, that Godaitha Price was violent in her resentments as well as in her attachments, which had exposed her to some inconveniences. And she had very indiscreetly quarreled with a young girl who Rochester admired. Mm. This connection, which till then had been a secret, she had the impudence to publish to the whole world and thereby drew upon herself the most dangerous enemy in the universe. How was it possible for her to bear up against these attacks in a court where every person was eager to obtain the most insignificant trifle that came from the pen of Lord Rochester? So, Goditha Price has really pissed off Rochester and he's writing loads of satires lampooning her because she has quarrelled with a young girl who he admired, which could be Margaret Denham.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> I okay. like your silence is kind of saying it all well, that. So <laughs> Some of you will have heard of Rochester and we'll be telling you all about him in this episode, but he's definitely also the kind of person who's up for a good time. And yeah, and an it also
1: extremely influential in court. Everyone wanted to read his latest poetry, so the kind of person that Margaret Denham probably would have been attracted to. And a lot of women prob- definitely were attracted yeah, to. Me. By all accounts, <laughs> yeah. So, summer into autumn sixteen sixty six, Margaret has James, Duke of York, heir to the throne, Lord High Admiral, wrapped around her little finger, trailing and bitchering after her. So bitchering was a word that the famous diarist John Evelyn made up to describe James wandering around after his mistress like a little lost puppy. It's quite plausible that the mistress power has totally gone to her head, and she's also carrying on with Rochester, making Elizabeth mallet um very jealous. In this episode, we'll be exploring why Elizabeth Mallet may have wanted to murder Margaret Denham and whether, given what we can find out about her character and her situation, we think she's a likely suspect.
0: Quick recap on the naming policy here, because people in this period always have at least five names. Mm. Uh, We'll be referring to Elizabeth Mallet by her name rather than her title but we'll be referring to her husband, John Wilmot, as Rochester, because that's how he would have been named at the time. Okay, so let's go. Elizabeth Mallet, who are you? And
1: is it possible that you murdered Margaret Denham? So Elizabeth Mallet is a really curious and intriguing character. She was by all accounts a very strong-willed woman. She wrote poetry She was hugely wealthy and known as the heiress of the West. As we've said, she was also very devout. But Rochester, the man she married, was one of the most controversial figures of the day, and they married in very strange circumstances. Rochester basically abducted her, seizing her from her grandfather's coach. If you've seen a film,
0: The Libertine, you will know that Rochester is played by Johnny Depp in his full, youthful, curly-haired glory. (laughs) And Elizabeth Mallet, his gorgeous wife, is played by Rosamund Pike. There is a very racy scene in a carriage when she recalls how he abducted her. In a carriage just like this, when I was a virgin heiress. If you've seen the film, you'll know how racy it is. (laughs) Mm,
1: Yeah. The film is a lot of fun and actually really interesting for this period, so I definitely recommend going and watching it. But I think, in a way, really to get get the audience to like Rochester more, it does do Elizabeth Mallet a bit of a disservice Mm. because she, she sort of seems to love the whole abduction thing and having sexy times with Johnny Depp. But she's also just kept in the country being sad while he's carrying on with other women and they don't go into her writing poetry at all like he's having a great time inspiring this famous actress having a great time in london and she is just kind of a devout foil Mm. she was born in 1651 so she was only 14 when rochester abducted her in the coach and 16 when they actually got married oh it's so uncomfortable but before we get more
0: into the coach seizing let's Let's have a look at her actual portrait. Sorry, Rosamond Pike, you're beautiful, but let's her try and have a look at what Elizabeth Mallet really looked like. Uh, she, of course, had her portrait painted by Peter
1: Lely. Yeah, the great court painter who sort of painted pretty much everyone of note. So we know that she was notable. It's interesting because he also painted Margaret Denham, so definitely moving in the same social circles, and Anne Hyde. It looks like she might be sitting on a sofa which was a new, a restoration sort of invention. I think it came, it was originally used by the king and queen. I think it came from maybe an Ottoman sort of similar item of furniture. Um,
0: But yeah, so potentially
1: she's sitting on a very sophisticated. New piece of f- and trendy bit of furniture exactly. move over DFS. Yeah it's hard to understand now how a sofa could be sort of sexy. Yeah and new. Yeah because it's so boring it's like DFS. Maybe it's a bit like uh, when the corner sofa
0: gets invented.
1: <laughs> yeah in the, in the <laughs> 80s or whatever yeah. Firstly
0: the things you can learn on this podcast. The invention of the sofa. Noted the décolletage exposed arms bare from the elbow down she's holding a rose which we talked about having a kind of potentially ironic symbolism given that the rose represented the Virgin Mary and these women well we're not sure about Elizabeth Mallet because she was very devout so maybe it wasn't that ironic for her but Mm. definitely for someone like margaret denham we think that the rose would have been kind of a joke
1: yeah Yeah. Um, and the ironic pearls she's yes more ironic pearls (laughs) featured here she's got a she's got lovely pearl earrings and also a beautiful pearl um hairpiece and necklace mm. as well. She's got this quite knowing arched eyebrow look. Kind of she knows she looks very in control the way she's kind of posing her hand next to her as well makes her look very kind of she's almost power posing mm. like she looks in command of the scene and like she's very deliberately kind of enforcing some of her personality on the canvas. She's got this very Slight hint of a double chin, which seems to have been all in vogue at the time. Yeah, and her long Roman nose.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I guess Rosamund Pike, you can see why they cast her long nose. But Rosamund Pike, far from this sort of plumptious beauty. (laughs) Plumpcious, that's uh, great. She doesn't look like she was blonde.
1: No, slightly lighter hair than Margaret Denham and maybe slightly uh, more pink and white complexion. She's got the sleepy-eyed look as well. So Elizabeth Mallet was born, as we've said, in
0: 1651 at the family home Enmore Manor in Somerset. Remember, she's the heiress of the West her parents I'm from
1: bristol so oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> from your, but i'm not your the heiress <laughs> but my ends yeah but you do have
0: sophie does actually have a very interesting ancestry uh, mm. including people like
1: milton so and jane lane who helped charles II escape and was sort of yeah on the periphery of this world so yeah so some pretty cool west country
0: action going on here <laughs> but anyway back to elizabeth her parents were john and Unton Hawley. Wow, great name! It's another good name. I'm a not
1: female sh- name as well. It sounds quite male.
0: It's Unten, weird, isn't it? Anton. I think my favourite has still got to be Pembroke. <laughs> Pembroke. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, her, her, Elizabeth Mallet's grandfather is a more important figure for us. Um, he was. Baron Francis Hawley. He'd been a royalist involved in the civil wars. He raised a cavalry to serve under Prince Rupert of the Rhine, Charles I's nephew. Uh, we mentioned him in the first episode. Sort of all-round general, dashing figure. I feel
1: like you always bring Prince. Rupert I always in, want to bring him your favourite.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he's my number one early modern hottie. <laughs> but I know this podcast isn't really about him, so I'll um oh so you just
1: want to look at his portrait his for a minute. portrait is really lovely isn't it <laughs> he's got such gorgeous liquid eyes in this image they're like a beautiful brown he looks so soulful yeah, and look at that mouth i mean really nice you, sort of you would just as well. love
0: to be kissed by that mouth i think <laughs> anyway let's get back to um elizabeth mallet
1: so she came to court with her grandfather francis hawley and was pushed immediately onto the marriage market. Uh, she was known as the catch of the season thanks to her vast wealth as heiress of the West. And she had many suitors who she ranked. Um <laughs> which is a really interesting it's I think. cool. yeah it's really cool and sort of a way of controlling the situation. She's mm. really, really young. Keep says my Lord Herbert would have had her. My Lord Hinchingbrook was indifferent to have her. My Lord John Butler might not have her. My Lord of Rochester would have forced her. Sir Popham, who nevertheless is likely to have her, would kiss her breach to have her. I mean, imagine being 14 and living in the kind of world where people
0: can write that about who you're going to marry.
1: Yeah, it's quite odd. And talking, like, about Rochester forcing her, yeah. as though that's fine yeah. um with for a 14 year old we'd just be like you're arrested you're a pervert today. Yeah. but despite having strong opinions she was. she made a promise not to marry without her grandfather's advice and given how young she was this was probably a good move on the family's part although most families sort of waited actually like um margaret denham's mother definitely did to kind of launch her into yeah. society and we might compare that sort of maybe more supportive family environment with elizabeth mallets so Not the easiest Mm. life, really, despite her vast wealth. And also that it's the grandfather who really pushes Mm.
0: her onto the marriage market. Yeah, and it's interesting
1: how she is a kind of tool that can advance him and that can increase his status. No surprise, really. Um, Elizabeth Mallett was reportedly very petulant and despondent about meeting suitors. Yeah, possibly because she was so young and just didn't want to get married. (laughs) One suitor suitor's father even, the Duke of Ormond, sent his agent Nichols to interview her when her grandfather was away. And the agent reports, she presently drunk my Lord Duke of Ormond's health and my Lord John's, his son's, in a pretty big glass half full of claret, which I believe was more than she ever did in her life.
0: <laughs> I, I love that story. I mean, well, aside from 14-year-olds drinking loads of claret, but mm-hmm. but everyone was drinking then all the yeah. time. Yeah, as we said, small beer. Also, I think God,
1: I was drinking wine by the time I yeah, was 14. Yeah, no, it's true.
0: I, who am I kidding? Anyway, <laughs> I actually, I like this story because I think it's a sign of Elizabeth Mallet as a strong-willed, feisty character, only 14, swigging away on the claret, holding her own. I think she must have been quite good at looking like an innocent flower, but being the serpent under it. You know, she probably really didn't care about the Duke of Ormond's son's health and then drinking his health, um, ironically. (laughs) And of course, the idea of Elizabeth Mallet's feistiness heightens my sense of her as a prime suspect in our investigation. Mm,
1: Afraid of nothing, including murder. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, she definitely knows her own mind and it's really a lot of fun. So she was part of a trend started by the Queen's ladies for cross-dressing and wearing breeches. So they're kind of really upsetting the status quo and showing an irreverence for kind of gender norms. Um, Yeah, I love
0: that they did that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, the very prudish Oxford Don Anthony Wood said in 1665, that women would strive to be like men, viz, when they rode on horseback or in coaches, wear plush caps like Montero's, either full of ribbons or feathers, long periwigs, which men used to wear, and riding coat of a red colour, all bedaubed with lace, which they call vests. Uh, <laughs> Most <laughs> elaborate so vest ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, mm, I love that they would have worn the wigs. Mm, so cool. Mm, yeah. Yeah, and you can see in the this image we don't have an image of elizabeth mallet but we do have an image of her very close friend francis stewart dressed as a man in and you can see the periwig here so cool and she's also it's interesting she's got the her bodice is actually kind of flattening her breasts yes so she's really got that masculine silhouette these massive billowing sleeves holding a cane Mm. As if posing with a walking yeah. stick.
0: And Francis Stewart and Elizabeth Mallet were mates. So yep. I think it's fairly safe to say they were both having fun cross-dressing. Mm. And yeah. Who and knows what else? <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, I like that, yeah. Yeah, and something and something they were sort of doing together as almost this club, as part of those close to the Queen in this very high elite circle and having a great time. And, yeah, English women at this time were known throughout Europe for being really sexually free, Mm. and this trend for emulating male dress is kind of part of that way of presenting themselves, being sexually free, and enjoying that freedom. Mm. I think it's also a thing that,
0: a kind of irony, in that the women who are at the top of the society can always get away with more, Mm. Like when it's the Jacobean period, Anne James's queen, dances in masks with bare breasts, Mm. and if a lower status woman had done that, would have been like, what? Yeah, absolutely unacceptable. Yeah, I think this. So these, you know, the women who are around the queen who are cross dressing, I think they're really kind of playing with their own social status and Mm. just using it to have a bit of fun. So Francis. Stuart's portrait, where she's wearing her great male costume, is in the Royal Collection. It's by Jacob Huisman's, painted in 1664. Yeah, Samuel Pepys witnessed the event of it being painted at Whitehall and commented, "A lovely creature she in this dress seemed to be." Her choice of riding habit, which is what she's wearing in the portrait, was kind of. More than an expression of personal preference. It reflects, as we've said, the prevalent fashion for court ladies to wear male dress, specifically riding costume, as day wear. I think there's a kind of deeper symbolism going on. Horse riding at this time is often used as a kind of metaphor for political control mm-hmm. or sort of general control. Like if you can if you're a man and you can control your horse, it's like, oh yeah, you can definitely control your kingdom or your or your women yeah (laughs) so i think that's maybe also you know part of it Mm. so this is the kind of person that elizabeth mallet our heiress is really good friends with i think it tells us that she must have been quite a forward-thinking person alternative into playing with social norms which probably made it even harder if you had a family who want you to be molded and modeled on those norms
1: Mm. yeah But it does sound like she resisted her family and that pressure in every way that she could. So going back to Nichols, who's the agent who was sent by the Duke of Ormond to check Elizabeth Mallet out as a marriage prospect for his son, Nichols reports that the young lady this morning came undressed into the parlour to take her leave of me. Her mother would have her begone presently, but she would not, but stayed with me an hour at least spoke it in such the manner of trouble and disconsolacy which I never saw. She has a great deal of wit. Her grandfather was addicted to his own interests. So, here she is, going against her mother's wishes, coming into the parlour, undressed, although this would really mean her early modern loungewear. (laughs) (laughs) Sort of like a... This great fashion history term that we've now coined. (laughs) Yep, yep. The uh, Restoration Juicy Couture taxi. <laughs> Um But she's also clearly kind of being pushed into things by her grandfather and is very unhappy about, you know, being pushed around in this way. Rochester
0: was actually quite late to the game. He wasn't one of the people crowding round in her gang of suitors. He probably didn't even initiate the idea. I think it actually all came from his mother.
1: Mm. And his mother is another amazing character. She was a super schemer, a very shrewd manipulator. She kept the family together through the Civil War and all that kind of tumultuous time in history. And it was her who really engineered the marriage. She managed to be close to the opposing court factions of Charles II's mistress, Lady Castlemaine, So that's the side that Margaret Denham was on. The other faction was the Lord Chancellor, Edward Hyde's side, and father of our haunted Duchess, Anne Hyde. So Rochester's mother was one of Anne's ladies of the bedchamber. She was also Castlemaine's cousin. And Edward Hyde absolutely hated Castlemaine. So she's really doing crazy networking to get everyone on her side. She must have been seriously
0: tactical and good at social...
1: Choosing yeah, and everything. very impressive. So she had been busy promoting a marriage between Elizabeth Mallet and her son, Rochester, to the king via Castlemaine while Rochester was in Europe. But it does seem that although his mother was the one promoting it, Rochester was very keen on the idea. He was very keen on the idea of Elizabeth Mallet's money mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, as his family was in financial difficulties. His mother's refurbishing of the family home had been very costly in 1664, her personal debts amounted to £19,230, just over £4 million today.
0: <laughs> Big spender. Yeah. But even with all her scheming, it doesn't seem to have been a done deal. The marriage between Rochester and Elizabeth Mallet, that is... Henry Bennett, later Earl of Arlington, wrote to Lord Sandwich, <laughs> sorry, just has the best name ever, <laughs> yeah. writes that, "'My lady Castlemaine hath rigged the king "'to recommend my Lord Rochester. "'Now these personages, being with so much advantage "'and preference upon the stage, "'I fear now no other can, "'with any probability of succeeding, enter. "'What I further hear from the lady "'is that she declares she will choose for herself.'" So again, we see Elizabeth Mallet as being renowned for being strong-willed, striving for independence in her marriage, going against these choices that her family are trying to foist on her mm. and that seemingly everyone else is trying to foist yeah, on her. Yeah, and it's
1: worth noting as well that means petitioning the king because if you're an aristocrat at this time, you need the monarch's permission to marry. Yeah. So without that you run the risk of being exiled or sent to the tower Mm. I also
0: love what we get from this letter quotation is the sense of kind of teatramundi that that this world is a stage people are watching it's like a kind of human chessboard
1: Mm, yeah it's um, so fascinating isn't it and such a kind of She's only 14 and she's playing this very sophisticated game. But is she a queen or is she a pawn? Mm, (laughs) Um, (laughs) And clearly Rochester approved of his mother's machinations because he set up this scheme when he returned from Europe to snatch the young Elizabeth Mallet and run off with her.
0: Yes. On 28th of May 1665, Peeps records that Rochester had run away on a Friday night last with Mrs. Mallet, who had supped at Whitehall with Mrs. Stewart. So that's Frances Stewart, she of the cool cross-dressing portrait. Uh, And was going home to her lodgings with her grandfather, my Lord Hawley, by coach, and was at Charing Cross, seized on by both horse and footmen, and forcibly taken from him, and put into a coach with six horses and two women provided to receive her, and carried away, Upon immediate pursuit, my lord Rochester, for whom the king had spoke to the lady often, but with no success, was taken at Uxbridge. But the lady is not yet heard of, and the king, mighty angry, and the lord sent to the tower. So, from this account, we know that Elizabeth Mallet was snatched from her grandfather's coach, taken away and hidden somewhere by Rochester. The lady is not yet heard of, Peep says. Rochester was later found at Uxbridge and taken prisoner
1: yeah yeah it's a really great story, and we also see sort of how the king was really putting pressure on Elizabeth Mallet, mm. so he had spoke to the lady often but with no success, but then Charles is very angry when Rochester tries to force the matter because this is actually socially unacceptable yeah. um, you can't just yeah, huge scandal, yeah, huge scandal and it's so dramatic, like nighttime, high yeah. scene getting all his servants in to do it, I mean. I don't know, would she, as we keep saying, because it's really shocking, Elizabeth Malick was only 14, Mm. would she, did she know beforehand, was it something that they spoke about? It seems like she wasn't very keen on Rochester, so was it actually totally terrifying Mm. being kind of... Yeah, just pulled
0: from your grandfather's coach and shoved in another coach with these random waiting women. Mm. And, like, driving along at night, you know, it's after supper, it would have been dark. Mm.
1: And does she think she's going to get raped? Like, does she have any idea of...
0: How far does she go before he reveals himself to her? Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean,
0: I always want to kind of think that this is one of these cool, sexy stories in history. You know, if they were in league and they were in love and maybe they'd been planning it together. The fact that she was 14 just makes it very uncool. How
1: old was he? Um, He wasn't
0: that much older than her.
1: Yeah, he was only about 18, which makes it not as bad as like a 50-year-old. Yeah, or Um, even a kind of... 28 year old Mm, yeah
0: it's much more Romeo and Juliet maybe quite helpful here to think about what 14 you know it's just not socially acceptable especially not for us now when they were casting the Baz Luhrmann Romeo and Juliet they initially cast Natalie Portman who was 14 Mm. and Leonardo DiCaprio was something like 21 maybe Mm. and then they had they stopped filming and got Claire Danes who was 17 because Mm. it was just too uncomfortable Mm but maybe fourteen eighteen is a bit more comfortable. I don't know. Anyway, uh, sadly for our historical romance fantasies, it seems that Elizabeth Mallet wasn't really that into Rochester.
1: After the abduction, um, Rochester was punished. He was taken to the Tower of London. They didn't get married immediately, as he'd presumably hoped from forcing the matter. So... It's possible she push, pushed for him to be punished. Maybe she's kind of taking back some agency and having more mm. control there.
0: Yeah, I like that idea. I think Sally it didn't really work out. Charles was not cross for long. He really did like Rochester <laughs> Yeah, a lot, he really did. He was really funny. <laughs> <laughs> and later in that same month, so we're still in June 1665, Rochester is released from the Tower because Charles was really quite into Rochester. Mm. He probably did... Want the marriage to happen, who would have known that it would have kind of sorted the Rochesters out financially?
1: (laughs) (laughs) But what's really interesting and quite odd in this story, and yeah, we can kind of only really speculate on this, is the fact that they didn't get married until January 1667, almost two years after the abduction. Yeah, a long time. And it doesn't seem like they were always settled on marrying each other either or at least Elizabeth Mallet certainly wasn't. In August 1666, she told Lord Hinchingbrook, who'd followed her to Tunbridge Wells as a suitor, that her affections were settled on another, but not necessarily Rochester. Again, it seemed like Elizabeth Mallet was wanting to carve her own path, a really bold move at the time. Mm. She got abducted very publicly, but then didn't marry him for two years. So, if Rochester had hoped to force her into marriage, ruining her reputation, it really didn't work. He kind of picked the wrong person. She was a tough cookie. Yeah. And was like, fuck no, what society sorry. says, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. But marry they did on 29th of January, 1667. And I want to stop and think about the timing here and how Elizabeth Mallett's marriage connects to Margaret Danham's death, Margaret starts being poisoned in November 1666 and then dies on the 6th of January 1667. Three weeks later, on the 29th of January, Elizabeth Mallet finally marries Rochester. Once, that is, she has safely got Margaret out of the way. (laughs) Well, that is my theory.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the the dates kind of match up for this grand scheme but we my watertight historical (laughs) (laughs) theories
0: i think it's also important to look into rochester's character because rochester's character really helps my theory he is so likely to have been sleeping with margaret denham as well he was really the kind of og libertine remember he's johnny depp in the libertine he's like Mm. all-around bad boy very glamorous very sexy even in, if he isn't yep. uh, abducting 14-year-olds, which yep. is...
1: Yeah, and as we said, kind of Margaret's type, he's he's n- notorious. Yeah, he's a rebel. Yeah, he's very socially influential, everyone wants to read his poetry. So, yeah, it does seem possible that they were having an affair, and if so, and Elizabeth Mallet really wanted to marry Rochester, we could say that this is a motive for murder. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know about you, Sophie, but I'm convinced. <laughs> explained how Elizabeth Malick came to marry Rochester and established that they would have moved in the same circles as Margaret Denham. It's a very small world, this elite mm. world, remember? So let's think about Rochester himself. So Rochester had a wild life, always getting up to no good, drinking, whoring, wasting all the family money, all the family money that is that his mum hadn't already <laughs> wasted on, on her renovations. Yep. There's one contemporary account of Rochester being Upon a freak, with some of his friends at the Bear at the Bridgefoot, among their music they had a humpbacked fiddler whom they called his honour. To humour the frolic, they all agreed to leap into the Thames, and it came to Lord Rochester's turn to do it at last. But his lordship seeing the rest in, and not at all liking the frolic, set the crooked fiddler at the brink of the balcony and pushed him in, crying out, I can't come myself, gentlemen, but I've sent my (laughs) honour.
0: God, I kind of love that story, even though it's pretty grim on many levels. Mm. Swimming in the Thames, oh no. Pushing poor humpback fiddler into
1: the Thames, watching all your mates do it, and then Mm. going, oh no, sorry, don't fancy that. Ha ha, I'll just run away. We had this interesting relationship with sort of cowardice and bravery Mm. as well, and that's something he sort of talks about in his poetry, where he was kind of, brave sometimes yeah he puts up this image
0: of being a real kind of like dilettante Mm -hmm. and reckless person actually but when
1: it comes to jumping in the water he's like no that looks a bit cold and a bit I might ruin
0: my lovely velvet vest
1: Mm, yeah no I don't think I want to do that yeah
0: I also really love the phrase being upon a freak Mm.
1: like
0: wild night out on the town we've
1: all been upon a freak
0: (laughs) I think also I like the story because it shows us this image of Rochester as someone who's... He's into staging things. Peeps records him giving the actor Thomas Killigrew, uh, remember him. He's the person who started the rumour about Anne Hyde um, uh, having sex
1: with him in the water closet, being looked at by swans. and that she generally (laughs) liked having sex in loos, and that's always what she was doing when she went in there. Just (laughs) showing those swans a good time.
0: (laughs) But anyway, Killigrew... um, was during a performance at the Dutch ambassador's house, given a box on the ear by Rochester, which was not good. You know, he was the kind of royal actor, sort of, even
1: if that was a kind of court jester role. Mm. Not good, seen as yeah. scandalous, and a fellow aristocrat. And you can't, yeah. you can't just box them on the ear. You can call them out into a duel, but it's not very respectful to just,
0: yeah, really them. not good. And and recorded by Pepys as being. A pretty scandalous incident, but Charles just pardons Rochester. That's King Charles, maybe. Yes, (laughs) yes. Peeps writes, This very morning, the king did publicly walk up and down, and Rochester I saw with him as fine as ever, to the king's everlasting shame, to have so idle a rogue as his companion. Yeah, even at the time, Rochester had this reputation for being... Bad boy, for being dissolute, mm. idle, rogue.
1: Yeah, and like with the abduction, you can also see the cycle of the. Rochester does something yeah. really scandalous, and then the king forgives him, yeah. and this happens throughout his life. So, after another time of too much debauchery and scandalous street fighting, Rochester's in disgrace. The king sends him away from court. It's like you've just really gone too far this time. Yeah, no one can see you for a bit. I can't yeah. be seen with you. Yeah. And Fuck off, basically. And Hamilton tells us that Rochester basically got bored in the country. I quote, he posted up to London to wait till it might be His Majesty's pleasure to recall him. He first took up his habitation in the city among the capital tradesmen and rich merchants, where politeness indeed is not so much cultivated as a court.
0: <laughs> Hamilton, so
1: rude to <laughs> yeah, the such merchants a snob. and the citizens. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but where pleasure... Also, that the court... Sorry, interrupting your Hamilton, but also that the court seems like this totally... Rude place where there is zero politeness, where people are being fingered while they're playing cards. It's like, <laughs> come on, Halton, who are you kidding? Well, what
1: was happening in the city? Ooh <laughs> la la.
0: <laughs> if it's even what worse. Were the merchant's up to. He
1: says uh, in the city, pleasure, luxury, and abundance reign with less confusion and more sincerity. His first design was only to be initiated into the mysteries of those fortunate and happy inhabitants, that is to say, by changing his name and dress to gain to gain admittance to their feasts and entertainments, and, as occasion offered, to those of their loving spouses. Mm. As he was able to adapt himself to all capacities and humours, he soon deeply insinuated himself into the esteem of the substantial wealthy aldermen, and into the affections of their more delicate, magnificent, and tender ladies." (laughs) He made one in all their feasts and at all their assemblies. And whilst in the company of the husbands, he declaimed against the faults and mistakes of government. He joined their wives in railing against the profligacy of the court ladies and in against the king's mistresses. He agreed with them that the industrious poor were to pay for these cursed extravagances, that the city beauties were not inferior to those of the other end of town. That's Whitehall in the West, And yet a sober husband in this quarter of the town was satisfied with one wife. After which, to outdo their murmurings, he said, that he wondered why Hall was not yet consumed by fire from heaven, since such rakes as Rochester, Killigrew, and Sydney were suffered there. (sighs) who had the impudence to assert that all married men in the city were cuckolds and all their wives painted." This conduct endeared him so much to the sits and made him so welcome at their clubs that last he grew sick of their cramming and endless invitations. <laughs> Poor Rochester. Yeah. Even in his disguise, he gets bored. Yep. But-, well, and, but also I think it's like, inter- you can really see his sense of humour here, mm. that he's pretending to be someone else and bad-mouthing the character of Rochester yeah. as being this, you know, terrible uh, person who... Is kind of an emblem of court depravity and he's saying how terrible court life is when obviously yeah. he's the most debauched person in the country. Yeah.
0: No, it's really good. It's um yeah, it's a great indicator of his sharpness, I guess. Mm. And and also his maybe a bit of a window into why Charles II was always so keen on him, like that he had this kind of, you know, it was easy for people to like him in some ways mm. that he's able to win all these people over to him pretty quickly mm. and also I think I love this story for what it what it well what it confirms about the lack of constancy at the core yeah that everyone's having so many mistresses mm. it's like they've got so many wives because the city men pride themselves on only having one wife
1: yeah and they're kind of more f- faithful even though they have They're very wealthy. They like to show off their luxurious silks and surroundings. They're quite shocked by the court.
0: Mm, Sexual
1: freedom. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. So another
0: great Rochester story, Hamilton says that after this disguise when he gets bored of being the kind of city hanging out with merchants guy he disguised himself as a german doctor who was knowledgeable in astrology and set himself up in london and was actually consulted by all the court beauties none of whom recognized him
1: and he just (laughs) pretended that he knew all their secrets and everything about them so good i think
0: this is making me like him a lot more when i tap into these stories Mm. and this kind of side of him Mm. So we're going to have a look at his portrait now. He's got his sort of, you know, tapping into this kind of highbrow classical symbolism. He's got his pillar and then behind it, this kind of crumbly Roman triumphal arch. His dress in the portrait is actually kind of Roman tunic, uh, as if soldier going off to war Mm, vibes. I feel like I'm not explaining that very well. Yeah, but but
1: it's a really interesting mix of very flowing restoration drapery with this red... Tunic affair underneath. Yeah, that looks like it's it's
0: stiff. It looks like it's kind of plated, mm. like armor would be, mm. and then those um, sort of skirty tassel yeah. things coming yeah. down. And but with a little
1: lacy cravat at the top. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and his yeah, and his also very uh, restoration periwig. More unusual things in this portrait, and the most unusual thing I think is the monkey mm. who is holding. A book open. He's got his little paw holding some pages mm. open and he's the monkey is sitting on a pile of other books um, and on a sort of marble table that's got bits of crumpled up paper on it. Do you think that's a reference to Rochester as a poet, as a writer?
1: Well, I think the monkey is supposed to be partly the state of man and that we're all kind of mm. monkeys, um, but also he's ripping out a page of the book. And Rochester is holding a crown of laurel leaves over him. So good. And Rochester absolutely had this hilarious rivalry with poet laureate at the time, John Dryden... Who is was a quite a boring, mm. stuffy man, very into the really atrocious rhyming couplet, just like endless, like dum 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 dum. His plays are so boring; I don't <laughs> recommend reading them. Um, but he and Rochester had this rivalry, and I think Rochester holding the crown of laurels over the monkey is supposed to be a slight t- at Dryden, poet laureate, yeah, as sort of yeah. like any monkey can write poetry. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and a real
0: irreverence, yeah, I like this idea of the monkey's ripping, r- has ripped the page out of the book, so one paw is holding the book open, the other paw is holding out a rips-out
1: page mm. towards Rochester. Mm. Um, and maybe the the monkey's being imitative, and it's like, here's my new poetry, but it's just actually ripped <laughs> from, from the book, I yeah. don't know.
0: Yeah, so really interesting, and, and Rochester, as he's holding this, laurel wreath crown over the monkey's head is is looking out towards the viewer with a kind of knowing half-smile. Mm.
1: Quite sexy bedroom eyes as well. He's yeah. got the, the lily bedroom eyes. He's got eyes. The sleepy eyes, yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, not as quite into his mouth as Prince Rupert's, sorry. Maybe <laughs> it's the periwig. Um, and I think it clearly, you know, Rochester clearly cared about his poetry and being a poet. I think there's... He, I mean, this symbolism is so kind of contrived. He must mm. have been part of that decision. Yeah. Uh, having the, the kind of, you know, the books and the 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 poet laureate referencing in his portrait.
1: Mm. Yeah, and it's interesting that he chose Hoismans as well because Hoismans was kind of the Queen's painter. So partly maybe he's aligning himself more with the Queen's side at court, but also Hoismans was very different to Lili in that his... Painting was much more symbolic and storytelling. So Catherine the Queen often used him to kind of portray specific parts of her identity and her resonance with Catholicism, um, and kind of message it, and her as a scholar and like messages mm. that she wanted to get across. So the choice of painter, I think, says a lot about Rochester in that he wants to kind of tell a story with the portrait, and that's very deliberate. Mm, that's really interesting. Kind of early modern.
0: Instagram mm. way more elaborate mm. but very but like the filter selection. you're using yeah
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah
0: cool the antiquarian and contemporary biographer John Aubrey said that the Earl of Rochester was the only man in England that had the true vein of satire so everyone was scared of his biting tongue but simultaneously wanted to read his latest verses <laughs> Another uh, great quotation from Hamilton who refers to Rochester as the most dangerous enemy in the universe. Never did any man write with more ease, humour, spirit, and delicacy, but he was at the same time the most severe satirist. So there are two sides to Rochester as the kind of wasteman prankster, but then there's also this sort of questioning satirist who... Exposes the world for what it is. And, you know, like Sophie was saying about the kind of man is monkey idea that you get in his portrait, I think Mm. that's a very kind of, I don't know, a sort of realist, a person who sees through the pretense of this fickle court world. And maybe that's the Rochester that Elizabeth Mallet would have gone for. You know, she's a strong willed, cross dressing young woman. She might have been all over his disruptive attitude.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I think his poetry sort of really underlines his appeal and this double-sided nature as well. His poem Against Constancy says, Then bring my bath and strew my bed As each night returns I'll change a mistress till I'm dead And fate change me to worms So we really get the sense of his fun-loving, sexually-free lifestyle. He's changing his mistress every night. He's just totally into hedonism, but also a sense of reality. The nights are kind of repeating only until he's dead, and then he's going to be changed into worms. And it's sort of quite nihilistic, like it's Mm. quite meaningless that you may as well just snatch what pleasure while you can, because we're all ultimately going to have the same fate, you know, regardless of wealth, regardless of position. Hmm. Yeah, I think there was a strong sense of atheism here with the
0: being, you know, changed into worms, I think. And that's really powerful in a period when believing in God is absolutely the norm.
1: Yeah. And Rochester does sort of flirt with atheism and at least with quite uh, scandalous religious beliefs. You know, mm. he's not orthodox. He's challenging the norms. But his poetry is also just very fun and sometimes not very meaningful (laughs) (laughs) so one of my personal favourites is um, it's a good favourite Signor Dildo it's a satire of the court ladies including very scandalously the Queen told through their interactions with one Signor Dildo who's part of the Duchess's train who I believe is um, Castlemaine after she got uh, promoted okay. to a duchess. Yeah.
0: Um, that's very. That would be very appropriate, isn't it? Let's make the king's mistress the, yeah. the duchess who brings Signor Dildo into court in yeah. her train.
1: The poem goes, you would take Him at first for no person of note because he appears in a plain leather coat. But when you his virtuous abilities know, you'll fall down and worship Signor Dildo. (laughs) So I I love for what that tells us about dildos as well. Like, you know, they were a plain leather Mm. item, easily Hmm. quite a bit more supple, because you get some uh like Elizabethan dildos that are made of wood, wood, aren't they? Mm, They look very uncomfortable. So things have moved on, luckily. (laughs) That's true. Yeah, we've Mm. got condoms, we've got leather dildos. Yeah, we're really advancing (laughs) the uh, sex toy. Basically, Anne Summer's next stop, pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, you get a kind of alternative portrait of the court through this poem. And Signor Dildo, so something the ladies are all using. I actually didn't know until I came across this poem a few years ago that Dildo was even a restoration word because you mm. think of it as so modern yeah it's so true yeah um, and apparently as well it was quite a popular word at the time used for various things so dildos also it was an insult um mm. and also it referred to- you dildo <laughs> what a dildo <laughs> we
0: Which should probably do that, now. that let's bring it back
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i quite like it um but it could also not mean- to say that we're against dildos <laughs> no but it's quite funny it's just a funny word isn't it yeah yeah and people don't know the etymology of it so apparently it might just be a kind of nonsense word like where Mm. they were they were going diddle diddle dildo Uh, yeah yeah (laughs) um but I like as well that the word dildo could also mean a type of curl on a wig so if on your periwig you know as we've seen with Rochester's fabulous wig and Francis Stewart if you had a little curl coming down onto your forehead it could be a called a dildo
0: so good such a
1: <laughs> great fact
0: <laughs> and i mean it, it really is it, it's a fun mm. poem but as well as being fun it's it's quite cruel at times it's pretty rude and cutting mm. there's one episode in it where there's a lady who's stealing the dildo from her own mother it's quite a gross vicious take on the world that he moved in Lots of his poems are very risque. He often rhymed ass and tars, which was a word for penis that was used mm-hmm. then. There's one called the, the Imperfect Enjoyment, which is, I think, a very intentionally long poem, maybe, <laughs> based upon premature ejaculation.
1: Yeah, he doesn't hold back. So, so the poem describes, My fluttering soul sprung with the pointed kiss Hangs hovering over her balmy brinks of bliss But whilst her busy hand would guide that part which should convey my soul up to her heart, in liquid raptures I dissolve all over, melt into sperm and spend at every pore. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, he was she was giving him a hand job basically and he came too quickly. In liquid raptures he dissolved all over. <laughs> I look like melt into sperm, like melt it's so, into sperm, it's, it's so quite gross. It is quite gross. Yeah, it's a funny way of using but, it. It feels like they have a slightly different idea of sperm like it's a melting thing or maybe it's just rochester i don't know or just
0: or maybe he just liked that kind of juxtaposition that this is the kind of guy who goes through the world with a very heavily raised eyebrow that it's liquid raptures melt into sperm i don't know
1: And it's all all over until he gets the next mistress in his bed the next night.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And he's kind of, it's interesting because this poem is, I think it's very deliberately kind of quite high polluting and it's Mm. pastiching serious classical forms. And there's a lot of classical poetry going around at the time, neoclassical. Yeah, Dryden, big into it. Yeah. And it's a popular style of architecture as well. We're seeing it in the Lili portraits with all these Roman pillars behind everyone. So, which I personally can find can get really boring, this obsession (laughs) with classical um, art and literature. So Rochester kind of pastiching this is actually quite refreshing and him kind of making fun of his own shortcomings, his own premature ejaculation is quite personable. Mm -hmm. And maybe we can understand why Margaret Denham might have had an affair with him. Yeah. A man who can laugh at his own... Yeah,
0: I think that point about the poetry is really important, I think when we read it to us it still sounds kind of like oh yeah old poetry but actually mm. if you were a contemporary reader at the time i think it would have been much yeah heavily ironic mm. and i think we also get another side of rochester when we think about his feelings towards his country home ditchley we're told uh, in a biography of him that ditchley had a hold on his affections that the city was never completely able to eradicate The city was to mean the clouded merriment of drink, the intrigues of the theatre, the half-hearted friendships with professional poets, affairs of love and lust, quarrels at court, the friendship of the king whom he despised, the brothels of Whetstone Park, disease and its remedy, Mrs Foucard's baths. The country was to be peace, even a kind of purity, finally the place to die in. From so the country house is also where Elizabeth Mallet mostly lived. And, you know, maybe she kind of represented that purity for him. She was a world apart from the kind of, well, as this biography said, the sort of the hellishness of the city. And this quotation is is actually great, I think, for capturing Rochester's life as, as having two sides. It's actually written, this biography, by Graham Greene, which I think is really cool.
1: Yeah, who's the? if you don't know Graham Greene... Definitely go and read some of his. He's a 20th century novelist, really hilarious. Yeah. Like the Honorary Consul and um, travels with my aunt.
0: So I think it's about time we got back to Elizabeth Mallet, who's actually the sort of, well, supposed to be the main subject of this episode. <laughs> and Elizabeth Mallet also wrote poetry Sometimes she and Rochester wrote poetry together. Rochester wrote to Elizabeth Mallet in a letter, I love not myself as much as you do. And she thinks it's really kind of interesting line. She loves him more than he loves himself. Maybe he's guilty. He hates the way that he's always running off being divorced with other people. Part of him always hates that. Mm. Or does it
1: mean that she is in love with herself? more than he yes true maybe it's true maybe it's actually quite barbed Mm. but i think it's interesting because yeah i but i think you're right that because he did have a sense of guilt about how he was treating her but also they sometimes seem to have a combative Mm. relationship so i think it's interesting it could be either yeah maybe it could He's a man of two sides. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe that's deliberate. And it's yeah. this kind of, they did have a bit of a war of words. So, yeah, as we've said, Rochester was perennially unfaithful. It must have been extremely embarrassing. And Elizabeth Mallet used poetry as a vehicle for her frustrations. So she writes of him as a fugitive returning with shame to her own faithful flame. Nothing adds to love's fond fire more than scorn and cold disdain. I, to cherish your desire kindness used but t'was in vain you insulted on your slave to be mine you soon refused hope not then the power to have which ingloriously you used mm. so clearly elizabeth mallet is feeling it
0: very badly when he wanders off and bangs everything that moves and i love that she writes of that of her, having her as a kind of power hope not mm. then the power to have which ingloriously you use mm. she's yeah you can piss off
1: yeah clearly
0: passionate person with strong emotions
1: yeah and i think it's so interesting reading elizabeth mallet's poetry and kind of how she is accusing him but in this very sophisticated way her poetic voice is really interesting she and rochester yeah they were quite competitive through verse but they could also be collaborative they wrote poetry together they had a Very complicated relationship, I think. And it's really not simple, you know, from the beginning, from the subduction, was it collaborative, Mm. what was going on, to their marriage. She also writes about herself here as his slave. But almost saying, I was your slave, I was willing to do anything Mm. for you, but now I'm not. And she's kind of maybe taking some control back in the marriage and almost rejecting the traditional subservient place, but also the place that in courtly poetry... Um, and traditional poetry the man always has around his lover, so it's always a male voice, yeah, pretty much writing poetry and saying, "I'm your slave, I'll do anything yeah, for you, true. and love makes you weak. um And she's kind of saying i'm not I'm not willing to do that anymore. You yeah. haven't proved yourself worthy of my love. At Rochester wrote poetry back to Elizabeth Mallet, which I absolutely love, this like extremely passionate sophisticated couple writing kind of like bitchy poetry to each other (laughs) when elizabeth mallet sent a servant to town to ask for news of rochester after a long silence he said to have just off the cuff written this back and he said i am by fate a slave to your will and shall be most obedient still to show my love i will compose ye for your fair fingers ring a posy in which shall be expressed my duty and how I'll be forever true to ye, with low-made legs and sugared speeches, yielding to your fair bum the breeches, I'll show myself in all I can, your faithful, humble servant, John. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Love it. Yeah.
1: Yielding so, to your fair
0: bum the breeches. <laughs> yeah, so
1: is that, is that a kind of uh, allusion to her and Francis Stewart, her mate Francis yeah. Stewart's habit of wearing the breeches? But also as well, obviously, wearing the trousers in a relationship. So there's that kind of double taking control metaphor.
0: Yeah, but in some ways, it's not that complimentary. And they're saying by fate, he's a slave to her, kind of as though he's stuck in this relationship. Also saying that he'll be forever true. But then he says these sugared speeches. And I think, you know, it's kind of like openly pointing out that it's a lie.
1: Yeah, that anything he says is sort of just to smooth things over, and it's quite fake, because sugared is this sort of artificial sweetener. What it says about their relationship is kind of, it's really interesting, I think. Yeah, And it's really definitely. great that we have both sides like this, which we haven't seen so much. Yeah. I think... It's very plausible that Rochester, knowing what we did of his kind of libertine lifestyle, that he had an affair with Margaret Denham and that Elizabeth Mallet would have wanted her own back both for the affair and for Rochester potentially giving her syphilis. But the way she presents herself in her poetry and her piety makes me think that I think she almost would wait until the sinners were sent to hell and she virtuously <laughs> ascended to heaven because she's mm. quite convinced of her, from what we know of her poetry and her piety, she's quite convinced of her moral high ground and I think she kind of believes that these people who wronged her mm. will kind of get their comeuppance.
0: Yeah, no, I think I think you make a good point. I do. I think, I, but I do think the timing is important. She marries you know, she finally marries Rochester at the end of January 1667 after Margaret Denham is dead and has, according to my theory, stopped having an affair with Rochester. By dying. (laughs) By dying. (laughs) Yeah. But I do take your point. This theory is at odds with the way she presents herself in her poetry and what we know about her religious beliefs. And I'm actually now going to sort of... uh, really uh pull the rug out from <laughs> everyone's feet here the lady rochester mentioned in this source might not even be elizabeth mallet
1: whoa yeah <laughs> big plot twist yeah we were
0: very surprised really pulled the rug out from under everyone's feet there yeah. well that's how it feels to us anyway yeah <laughs>
1: So it turns out that in the Restoration, there is another Countess of Rochester called Henrietta Hyde, totally unrelated to Elizabeth Mallet. Henrietta Hyde, you may recognise the Hyde name, she was Anne Hyde's sister-in-law and assumed the title in 1682. So it could have been her being referred to by the antiquarian John Aubrey. (laughs) Mm,
0: we did warn you early modern names are confusing (laughs) (laughs) so confusing that they even confused us (laughs) but can we discount our first lady rochester elizabeth mallet should we not investigate the second one who is now also a potential suspect before we discount elizabeth mallet
1: yeah i think we need to look at the life of henrietta hyde the other lady rochester (laughs) Did she have a motive? Is she a likely suspect in the affair of the poisoned chocolate? Was it she who hath done it? (laughs) Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoyed the show and you'd like to support the podcast, head over and find us on Patreon, where you'll find extra content about this fascinating period in history, early modern recipes, making the podcast and much more. Don't forget to like and leave a review.